Hey guys, what's up? It is week 265, and let's just hop right into the reviews. First up is from the SRS Retro line, and this is Savage Vows. Now, this is an SOV made from 1995, and uh, this is like, uh, the, it's produced by the Polonia Brothers. You guys know them. They did, uh, like, what was the one that was a uh, splatter uh, farm and stuff like that, and they did uh, stuff with some of the latter-day Camp Blood movies, if I'm not mistaken. But this is actually directed by somebody who worked with them a bunch uh, as kind of, I believe, more like uh, an actor or whatnot, and they kind of, I also believe they had a role in here. That is something, it's skipping my mind right now. So, okay, Savage Vows. Um, yeah, so it's kind of, you know, uh, very typical in some ways, uh, SOV from 95, but there's a couple really cool things that make it stand out a bit. So, uh, essentially what we have here is a struggling, uh, you know, widow, er, a widower, his uh, wife died, and he's having, like, nightmares about it and everything like that. So, uh, to help him out, a bunch of his friends decide to go with him to, like, a cabin, old ca family cabin, and hang out and everything like that. Of course, people start getting picked off, getting killed in gory details, and there's going to be a couple plot reveals and twists to find out who is uh, committing all these murders and whatnot. Um, I will admit the highlight here is that they do uh, visit a video store. They go to a video store in this film, and it's actually one of the, the Polonia brothers used to run this video store. It's called like Full Moon Video, and there is a, a long scene of showing the outside of the store, going inside the store, arguing about what they're going to rent. They name drop a lot of, you know, uh, kind of uh, popular horror films at the time in the SOV world. I'll say like Shatter Dead and stuff like that. So that was really neat, uh, especially for all those crazy kind of collectors or people that are kind of grew up in a video store or rented a lot from video stores. That was really nice to see. So that, that was my my favorite touch and i'm sure that's a lot of people's favorite touch um like i said there's a decent amount of kills in here there there is and the twist i thought was decent enough um the thing that SOVs are always held back by is a lot of the editing because they had to do on tape, edit on tape. So, like, of course, all the acting kind of suffers, too, because nobody's overlapping the dialogue. It seems like there's these long pauses in between and all that kind of stuff. Um, all, all in all, I thought it was okay. There is there is a decent amount of gore. One of the Polonia brothers actually is in here as well. People will recognize them right away. As far as the special features are concerned, there's a, a feature-length commentary. That's where I learned about the video store and who owned the cabin and all that kind of interesting stuff. And it's it's uh, the Polonia brother. I, I can't remember which one passed away. One of them did pass away, but it's the Polonia brothers and, and I believe the director. So they talk a lot about that. Uh, so anyways, uh, if you're interested in Savage Vows, this is one that I not really heard anything about until uh, SRS announced that they were putting it out. So check it out. Uh, might be of interest to you if you like SOV and and you want to see one of the coolest video stores of its time right there. Um, and it is kind of a camp slasher, too, in that aspect. A lot of stuff in the woods and whatnot. So, yeah. Anyways, it does have some high drama moments as well. But uh, they make up for it, I guess, with some kind of surreal, creepy nightmares if you like that kind of stuff. Okay, the next one up is from Film Detective. And this is A Life at Stake, starring uh, Angela Lansbury. And uh, that's really the big name for me. Um, so, yeah. Um, a Life at Stake is kind of like a, a mystery kind of uh, film noir style deal. We have this uh, kind of down on his luck kind of business guy. And uh, he carries a $1,000 bill wherever he goes. He has it framed so no one can kind of steal it. He's very paranoid and everything like that. He ends up uh, kind of having this relationship with Angela Lansbury, a married woman. And it starts as kind of business deal where he basically, it, it kind of gets complicated in the aspect. It's not really complicated, but it's more not my lingo, kind of like real estate and all this kind of stuff. And they're making a deal. And uh, she wants him to work with the, her husband. 
Um, and as he starts to kind of get d- deeper into this deal, they sign this uh, uh, this large life insurance policy. So right away, he starts to kind of question everything. Angela Lansbury's sister, who seems to be kind of almost like a black sheep of the family, kind of starts to kind of uh, hint at some so, some certain things and everything and opens his eyes here. So then we have like kind of a, a again, we have a love triangle with Angela Lansbury, your sister, and the lead here. And then we also have a love triangle with Angela Lansbury, your husband, and the lead here. The husband's much older, so you kind of have that. The movie leaves you guessing. Um, Angela Lansbury is a pretty good femme fatale, so the movie leaves you guessing on who actually is, you know, up to up to certain things. The guy paranoid, um, but you know, it, it's. It's not a perfect movie. It is interesting. I will give it that. Um, I, I didn't absolutely love it. They do set up a couple things involving, you know, um, the, the beach house and everything, and I thought that paid off nicely. Lansbury's good in it. Um, the lead guy, he's not exactly my favorite character or anything like that, if that makes any sense. It's kind of just like a paranoia vehicle, but Film Detective really cleans it up. Um, they do a good job with the restoration and all that stuff. But, again, my favorite thing about the release is it going to have to be the Hollywood Hitchhikers Inside the Filmmakers, and original Biowood motion pictures documentary which uh actually has um who's the uh c courtney joiner on here and he's talking about ida lapino and her career and everything like this and and that's very interesting because she was one of the early female directors in hollywood and it's just a, a unique story and she did a lot of other movies like uh what is the hitchhiker who is in the Edmund o'brien and stuff which is much more popular movie than this i would say or at least more well regarded um so so it was uh that was a nice interesting kind of look into her career which i thought was de- definitely worth the purchase and i really like how they do these uh, special there's a special features on the film detectives um they're about like 15 to 25 minutes or never they never wear out their welcome they never repeat themselves typically it, they're edited very nice with footage and it's just professionally well done i mean like i think a lot of companies should take note of, of their special features considering the fact that sometimes it feels like if you watch uh you know this you feel that you hear the same thing a hundred freaking times. It's just talking heads. There's no like finesse or flair to their special features here. It's, it's different here. They do a good job. There's also a commentary by Jason A. Nee and a full color insert booklet featuring a career at stake. Angela Lansbury in the last days of the B noir an essay by Jason A. Nee also who does the commentary. So uh, if this sounds like it's up your alley, I would check it out um, again. Um, so Ida Lupino, a very uh, popular director and someone who, um, had a very important pivotal moment in Hollywood and uh, this kind of talks about that and this one also I feel like there is some themes and stuff in here which are a little bit more interesting and uh, you know it doesn't end as your typical film noir it is dark but um, I think it's a little bit different here than some of them although they all kind of end at a dark level. You know what? I, I, I don't know how typical it is, but I think the ending did stand out a little bit here. And like I said, it did leave me guessing. I, I At one point, I thought that a couple of the characters were possibly throwing me a fast one and it was going to have a switcheroo. And I'm not going to tell you if that happened or not. But anyways, a life at stake. Okay, the next one up is kind of a one that I've been waiting for for a while. This is the new one directed by Brian Paulin. You know, Brian Paulin did a lot of crazy gore films, including Bone Sickness, Blood Pigs, Cryptic Plasm, and Fetus. So um, it had been a while since I've seen a feature-length film by him. He also had Morbid Tales come out, which was an anthology, some older stuff, and then he shot a wraparound for it. Did not get a chance to watch that one, but Septic. Okay, here we go. So right when this one started, I felt like it was a little bit different than a lot of his other films. Now, Brian Pollan's films are dark and disturbing and gory, and, and they're just kind of on the extreme side, right? He does his own special effects. He usually stars in the movies or has a has a role in the film. He's kind of like a one-man filmmaker, 
filmmaker here. So like I tons of ambition all the time and just uh, his films take a long time to make, but they're very handcrafted and individual and kind of one of a kind. So there's that. Um, Septic, like I said, it starts off a little bit different in terms of like subject matter. I know he made one early called Dead Girl on Film, which I never did get a chance to see. I think I have a copy here. And I imagine that probably has a snuff aspect as well. This one uh, does too, which, um, you know, after, you know, seeing his other films previously, like I said, like Fetus and Blood Pigs, they were just kind of really crazy, insane monster movies. So this one starts off with uh, a couple that um, it appears they're trying to raise a lot of money for some sort of surgery. Uh, she's trying to get pregnant. They have a, a sick daughter. And it's really kind of gritty and grungy kind of situation here. They kind of talk to Brian Paulin, who's going to help them get in contact with some rich people so they can start their own Red Room, which is kind of like an online snuff place for rich people to watch and all this kind of stuff think hostile i guess on a you know that kind of level for but more like more of the internet kind of hostile kind of deal i believe so essentially they set up a red room and, and we do get some creepy clips of somebody looking around on the internet and actually clipping in some of the, like the dark web and finding like some crazy snuff stuff and all that kind of deal so like um there's that, but there's also like a sexually explicit angle, which is not always in his films, where there's kind of some fetish stuff just with like puke, uh, just one scene, and then there's some like sexy stuff, and it's very gross too. Like they, they kind of like push your buttons on the grossness of, you know, stuff. I, I don't want to spoil every gag or every kind of taboo thing in the film. But uh, about halfway through the movie, not even maybe not even halfway before that, we're kind of introduced to this strange doctor, and that's when these medical experiments and these kind of weird experiments, along with the snuff, starts to get intermingled. And I felt like this was more in the Brian Pollen realm, right? Because we have kind of weird deformities and, and tortures that aren't really typical in a lot of other extreme films, but they are typical in the Brian Pollen world, um, especially if you see something like uh, bone sickness, which is I mean that bone sickness. Bone sickness but more so blood pigs where you just see all sorts of weird kind of crazy things happen to people but that that happens in here too um and there's a couple moments with the gorgags where um an orifice 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 geez i can't speak today was just like had a bunch of pus coming out and i was just like oh boy man so like if you're looking for gore look no further than this one this movie has tons of gore tons of nasty shit going on in it and that's that's definitely the highlight you know um as far as like the uh special effects like i said they're, they're top notch especially on a budget um the acting in independent movies always ranges you know what i mean it could be either due to some of the editing or just some of the performances dialogue whatever it is it, not all the performances come across uh, uh, genuinely great okay i have to be honest on that you know all almost every independent movie the, the performances will range in quality most definitely or or scene to scene that kind of stuff and that could be sound issues all sorts of things to be honest um, so, so like, I can't like say that all the acting is excellent. Brian Pollan, uh, he has some good moments in the movie and he has some good action moments in the movie, which was nice to see. And that, that, the action moment kind of comes towards the end when you're like, oh, it's starting the way down. You're like, okay. So, and then we kind of have a nice little surprise there. Um, like there's meltdown, like, I don't want to even say meltdowns, but like, there's this brutal, like complete, like destruction of skulls and all that kind of stuff as well. As far as the storyline is concerned, I did not like it as much as his kind of monster stuff because I'm more of a monster person and the ideas in those scare me a little bit more like blood pigs and fetus. They just kind of blow my mind. The ideas of them, it's just like, holy shit, this is scary in that. Um, and this is more kind of, I guess, in a grounded, weird kind of underground kind of world. So like the ideas and stuff and the fake snuff and the torture and stuff, that that definitely will appeal to a lot of, in, uh, you know, kind of extreme horror fans and everything 
like that. And there is moments that kind of made me kind of gag a little bit. Like just, like I said, the, the one scene in particular towards the end of the film, I just was kind of shocked by. And it doesn't really pull punches on who it kills and all that kind of stuff too. Um, there is some sort of like a character playing like an Asian, which is kind of strange, but the character says himself that he's kind of putting it on on purpose, over-exaggerating, so people kind of you know, suspect, like, they let their guard down a little bit, and he kind of explains this with, like, the angler fish and all that kind of stuff, so, if it sounds like it's up your alley, I know there's some special features on there as well, if you're a fan of Brian Poland, there's behind the scenes of Septic Outtakes, audio commentary with cast and director, like I said, if you're a fan of his films, and you're looking for something more a little on the sexual side for Brian Poland, and more, I guess, grounded in a, in a weird kind of crazy way, although it's not completely grounded, you know, but, uh, yeah, um, if you're looking for splatter, don't look too far from that because that's pretty good on that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, oh, I shouldn't say that the the kind of the soundtrack I thought was pretty good, like in a creepy way. A lot of like I wouldn't say I say droning in some ways and like pounding and, and some of that came across really uh, well done. Although sometimes the music and sound effects do overpower some of the dialogue, but like again, that's very typical in independent films. I, so if it sounds like Septic's up your alley, you can get it on eBay. So that's where he's selling it right now. I believe he has more so check it out ebay or check out his uh website i'm not sure if it's on there yet but check out ebay for sure search septic brian pollen or gore or something like that it'll pop up okay the next one here is from jonathan wilhelm and this is a patreon pick this is what he he told me to pick any mondo macabre movie that i wanted a chance to check out so i picked uh perversion story aka one on top of the other the 1969 uh, Gialli or a euro thriller from the legendary Lucio Fulci this is kind of the special edition here believe it or not this is one of the handful of Fulci films I had never watched and I was like well let's remedy that now I got a chance I'm gonna pick the Mondo Macabro and so I popped it in and uh yeah so like um this has uh geez who who's in this one I don't want to stop uh Gene Surreal John Surreal and who else I know like I don't want to forget any of the like big names there was a couple names in here which oh john ireland that's the one i'm forgetting and i was like oh john ireland was in a faulty movie john surreal so it's like it's very kind of shocking because like surreal um, was in so many of these, like like the Sweet Body of Deborah, and he's in a couple other ones too that are kind of bigger. He's in a Lenzi uh, a Gialli or, or Euro Thriller. Just I've seen him in a lot of things, and he has a lot of respect as an actor, I believe, as far as I could tell. And uh, John Ireland, uh, of course, kind of a classic actor. He did end up popping up in some really crummy movies like Satan's Cheerleaders. I, I don't know. A lot of people like that movie, right? By Graydon Clark. I'm not saying it's a horrible movie. I'm just saying kind of a, a definite B movie there. So um, anyways, what we have here is, uh, I, I don't even know how to go about the plot here. So uh, essentially, we have this kind of rich playboy. He runs this, I don't want to even say playboy, but he's married um, and he runs this like kind of medical clinic. His wife is, is sick and he's out kind of sleeping around with this other woman who like is a, a model photographer very common in euro thrillers to, to have like the, the gorgeous models in the in and around the place and you can have like all that kind of stuff definitely incorporates into these things so one day his uh wife ends up dying from some sort of attack he's not really sure how um, his brother in the film is played by Alberto Del uh, Mendoza, um, who pops up in Horror Express and a bunch of other Spanish horror films. He's a kind of a pretty, uh, you know, prolific Spanish actor. You recognize him right away. So um, after a while. Um, he, he realizes he's supposed to inherit this huge life insurance policy he knew nothing about. So that kind of complicates things, and insurance agents are following him around and everything. He gets an anonymous tip to go to this strip joint when he's on a date with his, his girlfriend. 
or a side piece, and he ends up uh, going there, and there's a stripper that looks exactly like his like his uh, late wife, but they have different color hair, different color eyes, and he starts to kind of get involved with her, and things start to get more and more complicated, and you're wondering, is this her? And uh, pretty soon the police are on his trail, they're starting to think that he murdered her, and before long, he's blamed for it. And uh, you, you, I don't want to spoil everything, but there's lots of twists and turns, and, and it all plays out really well. Um, uh, the acting is is all well done. I mean, some people say in the special features that Gene Surreal or John Surreal is not like the most uh, emotive actor or anything like that. But in the Jolly, Stephen Thrower says, "Well, Jolly, you're not really supposed to be. You're kind of keep it as a question mark and whatnot." And that makes sense. But uh, towards the end of the film, he does have some uh, some uh, expressiveness in his eyes and. He- Stephen Thrower, of course, points that out as well. Um, there's another interesting aspect here. This actually is filmed in a real-life gas chamber, which they say it's the first film. Uh, I don't remember the location off the top of my head. San Francisco gas chamber or something along those lines. First uh, place to be filmed in there. Um, so anyways, it's a really well-made, well-shot. Uh, the cinematography is well done. The set designs. It's a very professional, completely different from a lot of the other Fulci stuff. And, it, and it very different from either his early stuff, like Lizard and Woman's Skin, his early horror-oriented or thriller stuff. It's not much like that one either, or the psychic. I mean, it's even, I guess, more um, in the vein with some of Berto Lenzi's early Jolly. But I think it's it's better than a lot of the Berto Lenzi, you know, Carol Baker ones. And I know that may be sacrilege. I think it's better than all of them. Uh, I think it's really well done. I think the story unfolds really well. Um, the it looks great too on Blu-ray, um, and it has a score by Riz Ortolani, who's my personal favorite composer. I think he's amazing, and he worked with Fulci and Don't Torture a Duckling, and he did one of the most amazing scores ever. And of course, he worked with Riero Diodato, it goes without saying. Anyways, um, yeah, I, I was impressed with this, and I'm super happy that I finally got to watch it. So it's always good to check a Fulci off your watch list, right? And I've had this, I had a DVD of this one, and then right when the Blu-ray was announced, I was like, well, I gotta get, I gotta get the Fulci Blu-ray, nice special edition. Um, the special features on here include... Um, the full extended European version, uh, interview with actor Jan Surreal, interview with star Ilsa Martinelli, interview with writer Stephen Thrower, exclusive 12-page booklet by Roberto Curti, and then there's actually some lobby cards and everything in here as well. This is all region Blu-ray. Check it out. You won't be disappointed, especially if you like Fulci, or especially if you're like, I don't like the real harsh gore stuff. This is different for Fulci, and it's good. It's good stuff. All right, guys. Now it's time to hop into those 1980 movies. They did this to you! They're trying to turn us against each other! Just look at them! What do they know about friendship, anyway? I'll get them. You watch. I'll take care of those sons of bitches. Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good lord! It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. It must have something to do with some obscure sexual writer. With the almost profound respect these Getting very careless. Blood in your hair. What will we do? You want to look pretty, don't you? For me. I can't believe you're not afraid. All you have to do is piss on it. Could you care blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. You'll never come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. 
It's got a death curse. Evil. God, my leg. God, my leg. Hi, Peter. You're here. There's a fog bank out there. Messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. Demanding everything, including blood. John, I want this material burned. All of it. My son was a son of a bitch, and he was no good. That's it. My son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. Oh, Sandy. Oh, Sandy. You're gonna die. Ma'am. We didn't find any boy. You know as well as I do. Takes all kinds of critters to make farmer Vincent fritters. <laughs> I wonder who the real cannibals are. Okay, guys, uh, the first one up from 1980 is A Doozy, directed by Robert Hammer, his only feature-length film he directed, and uh, starring legendary character actor, my personal favorite character actor, um, at least one of them, Nicholas Wirth, and that is Don't Answer the Phone, um, and a rare bigger role for um, Nicholas Wirth here. So, uh, yeah, this this was made in 1979, released in 1980, and it follows uh, um, this really gross strangler the serial killer named Kurt Smith, who is basically harassing this, uh, uh, this like, like, um, how do you put, like, I don't want to say disc jockey, but she works in like a radio. She's like a radio psychiatrist where people call and everything like that. And, uh, Kurt, Kurt Smith, this, this ex Vietnam vet photographer is basically obsessed with her and keeps calling her, picking off her patients and everything like that. That's half the movie. But then we also have this detective storyline with James Westmoreland and Ben Frank from death wish Two, kind of like looking into the case. And we have like some shenanigans, some seventies carryover shenanigans like last house on the left, of course. Um, so that's, basically the plot of course the movies get they're going to come together um the real highlight of this film is Nicholas Worth and, and what he put into this performance. Now, if you look at him like on paper, he's like, they say ex, he, he has post-traumatic stress disorder. He's racist. He hates his mom. He hates his, his dad. He hates women. He just hates everything. He also has some weird religious kind of things like that, religious obsession. He's just every serial killer you could possibly, every check mark of, of a serial killer, the reasoning, and it's all mixed together, right? Like he has, uh, he has mommy, daddy issues. He has, he hates women. He's racist. He's 
he's a, a religious fanatic. He has post-traumatic stress disorder. He's a voyeur with the photography. So he's like every possible thing you could crunch into one serial killer. And you're like, that's just like a kitchen sink approach. But for some reason, um, and Nicholas Worth directly worked on his character in the script, he knocks it out of the park here. He is just an amazing performance. And some people say it's like a hammy over-the-top performance, but I think it's so weird and just bizarre and, and genuinely creepy and hands down the best part of the movie so uh yeah it is a sleazy film it even has a sleazy kind of soundtrack to go along with it it's kind of it's just a very kind of i don't know how to explain it like 80s sleaze soundtrack so he he's basically in like hollywood and he's strangling these models and all sorts of people he comes across now every time the cops find the bodies they talk about how badly they're damaged how they were raped in every orifice, everything like that and uh but but like during the, the actual murders they are graphic and, and disgusting but it's more of a strangulation kind of they avoid like kind of showing a lot of the details and then like I don't know if they like decided to add that stuff in later and whatnot. But uh, the movie is kind of famous for Nicholas Worth having like these crazy monologues where he like just talks and everything like I just like kind of I guess uh, soliloquies to himself while he's drinking and he's just like completely delusional. It's just wonderful stuff and not to mention that he was a power lifter and he is really a big guy. He's very strong. He's very intimidating and he, he played like a henchman and a goon in so many movies including Darkman and uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown, Action Jackson, Best of the Best 2, Hologram Man. He plays like this kind of goon and, and, and although he is scary in those movies, he's almost cartoonish and, and goofy. And this one, he's genuinely fucking terrifying. Like one of the better performances of a serial killer in a movie. And uh, towards the end, um, when he actually um, has a face-to-face with the, uh, the psychiatrist, she's really great too. And it's just a really intense performance for both of them and scary and you can see the physics and everybody um so the ending ends uh exactly like another 1980 movie that i love i won't spoil it but if you watch the opening of this you'll you'll see that and it's kind of funny to me and i always bring it up when i talk about both movies um in 1980 they both made these movies uh don't answer the phone and the other one and then they were in a movie together uh a, a couple years later and i wonder if they brought it up like hey you you that happened in your movie too it's like exactly the same fucking way that's crazy but uh any, anyways i really enjoy this one um, like I said, it would be like almost, it would be higher rated if it weren't like, and I don't want to say like the tonal shift. Cause I understand that, that carryover from the seventies tonal shift, uh, drive in grindhouse movies. And I'm fine with like having some weird comedy in your movies. I've gotten used to that town. The dreaded son, our last house on the left. It's just that the Nicholas worst stuff is so much more, uh, scary and well done and him just wandering the streets and, and like the cop stuff's not horrible. It's just sometimes just seems, uh, just not up to stuff with it, right? Um, it's just not nearly as interesting as Nicholas Worth or the psychiatrist. And there's this like, element of real kind of grimy shit that he's picking up this poor psychiatrist's patients and, and strangling them too at times. So as far as the special features are concerned, we have some carryovers from the old uh, BCI disc and uh, anchor Code Red Blu-ray answering the phone video star with Nicholas Worth about the... Um, this film and then we have for what it's worth to ask him about a lot of his other movies which was really great because there's not very many interviews with Nicholas Worth and he died in what 2006 2007 unfortunately um, he, he's always done a great job and I always enjoyed seeing him then we also have a commentary track with writer producer Robert Hammer and a director introduction and Robert Hammer did take some heat for this movie because of you know people saying misogynist all that kind of stuff and he did base a little bit on the Hillside Strangler case kind of looked into it and that case was happening at the time and, and whatnot. And the, the suspects had not 
not been apprehended. So that's pretty crazy. Anyways, Vinegar Syndrome did a great job restoring this. Um, it sounds great, looks great, and it's just a crazy 1980 movie with one of the best performances, hands down, by Nicholas Worth. So check it out. Okay, the next one from 1980 is The Hearst. Um, yeah, this is also a, a Crown Royal. Um, and that was the same with uh, Don't Answer the Phone. Um, this is also a Vinegar Syndrome release. And I had heard, uh, you know, not too pleasant things about the Hearst. Um, but I had seen the cover floating around. I, this was the first time watched for me. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, what we have here is a woman who suffered a nervous breakdown recently. I believe her, her husband, they got a divorce. And she kind of had a breakdown and kind of lost herself. So her uh, her aunt has this old house. She's passed away since. And it, it's technically hers. So she decides to kind of go live there for a while and escape from everything. She ends up going to this small town. Well, it has a really great small town feel. Um, on the way there, she kind of sees a hearse. She almost gets in a car accident with him. It seems like this hearse is stalking or following her around. When she gets to this small town, everybody there is very unfriendly when they find out she's living in this house. They're very superstitious. They do not like it. Joseph Cotton is basically kind of handling like the probate stuff and everything like that. Joseph Cotton's in Baron Blood and a bunch of classier movies that people probably love that I'm more familiar with Baron Blood by Mario Bava. So uh, he, he's this big asshole in it and he's really great in it and has a great interactions of just being kind of a dickhead the entire movie so um essentially there's other people you might recognize perry lang from alligator from 1980 is in here as a young kid so essentially what happens is she starts to kind of just have a lot of spooky things around the house it's pretty predictable pretty obvious what's going to happen when a kind of a strange man starts to hang around and uh, all these people she's reading a diary and the diary's kind of showing all these things in her life and, and like the past i mean that a lot of this stuff seems to be occurring to her at the same time and the hearst is always in the background it's kind of just a spooky haunted house uh situation where lots of things are coming uh to fruition from the book it's it, like i said i don't want to spoil too much but it's predictable what it does well is it does have a nice small town feel it's professionally well shot uh and and like i said it does have like a nice little feel to it and, and um Although it does kind of have the charm of a really well-made TV movie at times. The lead performance is solid. Um, Joseph Cotton's good. All the side characters are good. You'll recognize the heavyset guy in the diner as the heavyset perverted uh, uh, kind of guy who, who buys ph photographs from Kurt Smith and Don't Answer the Phone. He's funny in both films. I should have brought him up. He's good. He's good. Um, but yeah, anyways, um, like it's just like it kind of drives you crazy that everyone in this town is an absolute piece of shit. Chris McDonald's also in here. You know, Shooter McGavin, very young in here. And the ending, it kind of saves all the carnage for the last, like, ten minutes or so. And anyways, I, I can't give this a wholehearted recommend, but I can't give it a... a, a uh, a negative either I was right in the middle I gave it like a, a six or something I enjoyed it to what for what it was but I don't absolutely adore it or anything like that it's a little dull but it's well made if that if that kind of floats your boat and uh and it, it's well shot too and it looks great and sounds great from vinegar syndrome um but don't I know a lot of people are disappointed it's not like a killer car movie ever hearse driving around running people over and killing them that's not the movie this is not that so it's something different and uh really as far as special features are concerned we have an interview with lead actor David Kurtuax uh, I don't know to say French names are very strange and hard for me to say, especially if I haven't heard them pronounced that loud. But that's the second one from 1980. That is the Hearst. Okay, the next one here is absolutely bonkers. Definitely made the video nasties list, and this is Night of the Demon. That's right. Not to be confused with Night of the Demons or um, Night of the Demon from the 50s. Uh, so th that's the classier movie, of course. Night of the Demon is the 1980 kind of Bigfoot run amok movie. That uh, Severn put out. It also, like I said, made the video nasties list. 
And uh, I had seen this one before. I, it's been a while. But rewatching it, I had a good time with it. So the the whole movie is absolutely fucking ridiculous. We open up with uh, basically a doctor. He's all bandaged up, and he's in this hospital bed. And then, what happened? Where, where are your friends? They're all dead. We don't know. They're all missing. What's going on? Your students? He took them in the woods. Um, and so he kind of explains the story, and we kind of have this flashback. Within this flashback, we have other flashbacks of them recalling other Bigfoot stories where we go into the story of Bigfoot kind of ripping people to shreds, ripping off a biker's dick in graphic detail, killing a guy chopping wood with an axe. So, like, we have these flashbacks or these campfire tales within the flashback. At one point in this movie, mind you, we're in a flashback the entire time, um, we have um, the, the professor attacked viciously only for the character to wake up and it's the professor's wife at her bed, not even at the camp with the other people, dreaming about it. And it's a fake out. You know, you can't do a fake out nightmare sequence in somebody else's flashback. That does. It's just like, what the fuck? How would he even know that happened? How would he even know? Um, so, so it's just absurd. Like structurally, it's absurd. Um, but really, what what you do for this movie, you watch it because it's absolutely sleazy and gratuitous, and it's gore, and it, it it has a lot of weird shit going on. And the ending is fucking bonkers. This is like one of the meanest Bigfoots of all time. So, uh, gri- uh, so basically, this this group of kids and this college professor are out there to look for the Sasquatch, and they fucking find him. He's pissed off. They find this weird legend about you know uh, religious fanaticism in the woods and people being raped and bestiality and off weird mutated offspring and you're just like this is going places that i did not expect it to go i did not not remember getting that crazy i did remember the graphic penis ripping and the bigfoot swinging around the guts around the fucking uh cabin which is awesome so like there's lots of cool stuff to like about the movie um the acting it's not great it's not the worst you've ever seen it's it's pretty silly at times but it fits the tone of the movie um, like I said, if you're looking for Bigfoot to kill a bunch of people and just be brutal and act as if like a 1980s slasher where he takes like pleasure in hurting everyone, then uh, Night of the Demon is for you. As far as the special features are concerned, there's a bunch of them, and I, I checked a lot of them out. Um, basically, uh, Cryptic Currency, Transgressive Aggression in Bigfoot Cinema, video essay by David Coleman, author of the Bigfoot Filmography. And uh, this is really cool. Like, I watched all these back-to-back, and there's a lot of fucking Bigfoot. So they break down all, like, uh, all the different films that this possibly was inspired by and stuff like that. Um, They go into all these Bigfoot kind of films, like how what they took from what. Um, Then we also have Tales of the Cryptid interview with Stephen R. Bissett, co-author of Cryptic Cinema. This guy knows a lot about it as well. And, um, like I said, like I learned so much about Bigfoot, but I'm mixing all of them up. I don't want to like attribute what this person said to what that person said and whatnot, but, uh, they they go in depth about a lot of things here. Then we have Mondo Bigfoot interview with Lyle Blackburn, author of Boggy Creek, uh, case book. And I, I really like that too. I've seen this guy before talk about Bigfoot, but he kind of like, um, you know, like you think like a lot of these people that are obsessed with finding Bigfoot and all that kind of stuff, you, you get the impression, oh, they must be crazy. And this guy just, and this one, he like breaks down why people enjoy watching Bigfoot films and just all that kind of stuff and and the suits and which ones he finds the best and all that kind of stuff very cool and this one's also interesting deconstructing patty interview with william munz author of when roger met patty and he basically starts to break down 
like the real life footage of Bigfoot that everybody remembers the, you know, the Bigfoot walking through the woods, looking at the camera. He breaks down, you know, the, uh, how they figured what was fake, what was real, how they figured it all out. Very detailed. Then we have the band, the sadist videos one and two on here. My nasty memoirs interview with band, the video sadist videos, David Gregory, where he shows off his video nasties on VHS. That's only disc two for the special features. And then on disc one, we have just a little green kid out of Waco, Texas interview with producer Jim L ball. They didn't even maybe do it. Interview with director, James C. Watson. I had the demon interview with cinematographer John Quick. Fraternity of Horror. Previously unreleased 1964 feature produced by Jim L. Ball and shot by John Quick. And then we have the trailer. So there's a lot on here. They actually wrote a little novelization tie-in that you could get at one point, which I imagine is extra sleazy and goofy. But if you're looking for like just kind of like trash-tastic 1980 video nasty Bigfoot movie, then Night of the Demon's the one for you. It's fucking bonkers. I, I, it's nuts. Speaking of nuts, we're getting to the next one here, and this is We're Going to Eat You from 1980 by uh, Troy Hawk, who did uh, Deadly Encounters of the First Kind, which I covered a little bit ago for 1980. Completely different movie from this. Like, it's crazy that the same director did We're Going to Eat You and First Encounters of the Deadly Kind. It's kind of mind-boggling. So this is such a weird movie. So essentially what happens is, in the very beginning, we have, like, these two trappers that land on this island, and they're telling them that their guide is leaving. Why is he leaving so quick and you find out right away basically all these people kind of ambush them and they start like chopping and killing them and and just as elaborate kind of attack scene happens um they bring these people back to their village and it appears that this entire village is filled with cannibals they want to eat them they have this weird hierarchy and government where like the hunters that go out and get the food get more of it and the workers don't get as much and everybody's fighting about how much food they want to eat and and all this kind of shit so enter special agent 999 or some shit like that and he comes to this island looking for this criminal who's hiding out amongst them who doesn't want to partake in eating the flesh so uh, it gets really crazy really elaborate a couple other people are not happy with their circumstances on the island as well so they help this kind of guy out but that doesn't stop uh, you know from the movie from having a bunch of fight scenes and all this kind of stuff and and interactions with the cannibals and the criminals so the criminal and the the agent kind of team up in a lot of ways but um, and, and some other people as well but like, the thing that really makes this movie shine is how playful they are in the fighting. You know, it reminds me of something along the lines of, you know, a Peter Jackson or a Sam Raimi or even Spooky Encounters of uh, the Stra- or the, the uh, Strange Kind or what was that one? Spooky Encounters, um, basically. Where, like, you know, they're playing uh, with the fights very, very you know, like, um, t- I don't want to say they're... they're they're having fun with the fights, you know what I mean? Like where a character gets knocked down, he falls on the table and a, a, a meat cleaver lands down and a hand gets chopped off and you'll go like, oh, shit. His hand got chopped off, but then he stood up and it's just an arm that's been sitting there and his hand didn't get chopped off. Like lots of fun like that. The bad guys are really weird and gross and crazy. And they definitely in the back, they hired like a lot of character actors that just have faces like, like oven, like uh, oven mitts and stuff like that. Like this uh, catcher's mitt, sorry, oven mitt. <laughs> what is it? The Arby's guy but uh yeah and just this one guy he's in the background the whole time he just has a face like a catcher's mitt like it reminds me of crazy ralph from friday 13th or something but uh lots of memorable faces lots of crazy fights good gore people getting eaten just a wild weird movie you don't see too many cannibal movies where the whole entire village feast upon people and it's like a giant like village and like way of life for these people anyways it's got good 
sets. Um, I don't even say sets. It's got a good location because very rarely, you know, do you see like this kind of stuff partake in an island. Like, I mean, you see cannibals like, you know, Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal Ferox, but it's a completely different kind of cannibal. I don't know how to explain that. This one is just such a weird movie and you got to kind of have to see it. I really enjoyed it. Um, just a lot of fun. Kung Fu in here, of course, and, and gore and just a cannibal Kung Fu movie. I know Raw Force kind of in the same boat as that zombie too. I mean, there's lots of weird movies like then we have Zombie Holocaust, the cannibal zombie movie, but uh, I don't know if there's anything quite like We're Going to Eat You, um, which is the tagline for Zombie from Fulci the year before, which I love. But uh, yeah, check this one out. It's a lot of fun, especially if you like the kind of playful fights and gore all mixed together. This is definitely for you. Okay, the next one up is Vengeance from 1980, a.k.a. Scream of Vengeance. And this one made the Tier 3 video nasties list, believe it or not. And I do believe it after watching it. So it might have, it's worse than some of the ones on the second list for sure. So uh, what we have here is kind of like uh, the plot of like Beyond Terror, the 1980 movie, right, with the criminals on the run. But it's a little bit different, a little bit more grounded. We have these uh, four criminals that decide to basically, um, they, they kind of break into this diamond. Uh, this guy runs this diamond shop. They break into his house and they tie up his wife and daughter and say you're going to come with us to go get these diamonds and if our guy doesn't hear back every five minutes we're going to kill your family so they these other three guys take him to there something goes tragically wrong um one of the bad guys is such a fucking piece of shit he can't help himself but try to rape uh, one of the characters or rape one of the characters and a bunch of people end up dead they end up taking two hostages on the road with them uh, and they basically are stranded in the woods when they try to make a break for it. And it's basically a game of survival. These two versus these three kind of monsters. The bad guys are really creepy. They're really well done. All of them have like a uh, unique like kind of looks to them. And they, they're very memorable. Especially the one character, Luke, who has like this whole weird, this really bothersome scene with this young girl that he has kidnapped. And he basically asks how old she is. And he starts singing this Sweet 16 song. And that whole scene is just well done and uh, keeps you on the edge of your seat and just really really uh bothersome another thing i noticed here is when people get shot you feel it the squibs go off they, they have like big impacts and it's just bloody and and it feels kind of like a sense of realism and when uh the squibs when people get shot um but most of all it's just kind of a survival film where you pit this this newly met guy and girl that were at a laundromat trying to survive you know against these these monsters that are chasing them down in the woods um the bad guys get their comeuppets uh i, I enjoyed most of how they they got killed. Uh, I thought that was worth it. And uh, it's a dark, dark, sad ending of a movie. Um, and like I said, I like these kind of movies, chase them through the woods deal. And, and it is more of an exploitation movie, but it crosses into the cruelty, I think. And like I said, that opening with a, with a home invasion and stuff like that, it's pretty fucked up. Like it just goes a little bit further. And I think I saw a more uncut version than maybe the typical uh, stuff that a lot of other people saw. But uh, anyways, I thought this was a really good exploitation kind of movie from its time. Um, it'd be nice to see a Blu-ray or DVD of it somewhere. Scream of Vengeance or Scream for Vengeance or just Vengeance. There's like three movies called Vengeance. Those so would be careful. There's one from 70, there's one from 77 and there's one from 1980. And I'm sure there's more than that too. And then there's the, I believe there's even another one, uh, spaghetti Western called Vengeance uh, by Antonio Marigetti. So be careful. A lot of vengeance is out there. So yeah. 
Okay, the next one I'll, I'll be relatively short with, maybe. Every time I say that, I'm, I take forever. But this is a bat without wings, and this is a Shaw Brothers flick from 1980, and this is one of six kind of horror-oriented Shaw Brothers movies that were released. I also I already did Lost Souls, so this is the second one, Bat Without Wings. And this is more of an action mystery kind of adventure, I guess, than a horror movie, but it does have a lot of these kind of like gothic little takes on it and everything like that. So basically it opens up with explaining a story. There was this kind of demon or this crazed person that called himself the Bat Without Wings, and um, he basically fought 28 boxers and he killed 26. Eventually, these two subdued him and after that uh, kind of lived in infamy and whatnot. He's supposedly dead. Um, after a while, this supposed character comes back, the Bat Without Wings, and starts attacking people and, you know, killing them and poisoning them. And he's claiming he's the Bat Without Wings. And they basically, this group, this guy wants to get revenge because his daughter was murdered and uh, a couple other people get involved that don't that want don't want to see this a fiance the daughter and, and another guy who uh so they start to look around but it appears that there's a lot of people looking for the bat swords uh because the swords were separated and whatnot and they were given to two women that he absolutely loved it leads to all these kind of double crossings and reveals and people are are who they are they they're not who they say they are people are not on the side they say they are there's some people faking their deaths all this kind of stuff there's lots of kung fu fights and sword play and everything like that the best of which kind of take place in this underground layers where it looks kind of like horror oriented with a lot of thick fog there's a really cool like pond or bog scene where like all the water's poisoned and shit and they do play around with a lot of that stuff um the main bad guy's really cool and i enjoyed the kind of thing at the ending where like they kind of go into lunacy overall it's a decent solid cool shaw brothers flick i've seen better of course but i thought this was an interesting take and it does share similarities to something like human lanterns which would come out two years later from Shaw Brothers. Like, I, I feel like it does kind of share, like, some of the gothic stuff. I would call that more of a horror film and more gory, too. But, uh, yeah, this one does have some cool aspects, some revenge and mystery and intrigue and everything like that. But by the end of it, it's a lot less supernatural than you would think. That is a bat without wings. Um, and they they say the bat without wings, like, 500 fucking times in this movie, so you won't forget, right? Yeah, that's bat without wings. I'm going to say it again. Okay, and the last one from 1980 is Visitor from the Grave. This is a Hammer House of Horror directed by Peter Sazdy, who did a couple, uh, one of the or one or two of the Hammer Draculas and a slew of other kind of uh, kind of horror-oriented ones. Um, so, a Visitor from the Grave. Now, this is a perfectly well-made, well-directed movie as far as filmmaking technique is concerned. It's just that the script is so dull and so by the numbers that um, it would be very hard for you to have really any intrigue. So, the very beginning of the film, we have a uh, uh, um, a couple kind of vacationing in this, uh, I don't know if they're in like this, I guess it's like an English home kind of in the country. This crazy guy shows up um, and it's just her, uh, the woman's just left alone. He says, well, your your boyfriend or your, he owes me money. I'm going to take it on you. He attempts to rape her. She kills him. They decide to cover up the body and she's pretty much haunted from, uh, you know, this guy's ghost ever since. Without like 10 minutes, you're like, I know exactly what's happening here and that we're going to have that twist. And then they even at the very end of that they have the same another twist that you see predictable and this could be any more predictable i don't even know why they would even you know it's just one of these deals where it's not particularly bad but it's so by the numbers that you're like okay i got it and it still goes on for about an hour um it's just everything about it seems like so much like so obvious and everything um like you generally see some blood and stuff like that from uh you know the ghost and stuff but i really can't even talk about this anymore without just telling you the ending and saying how obvious the entire thing was and i mean if you it's not nearly as good as something like charlie boy or silent scream or or i would put it on maybe a, a little bit 
worse than Children of the Full Moon out of the four Hammer House of Horrors I rewatched or watched for this, but I just have not much to say about it. There is kind of a crazy seance, but uh, at the end, but it, it is what it is. It's predictable kind of gaslighting, possibly ghost story here that you've seen before or maybe done better after this was made. I doubt this was the originator and this kind of thing. You know, I mean, that would be legend. A whole house has all that stuff too, right? So anyways, that is a visitor from the grave. Um, not really the strongest in the Hammer House of Horrors, to be honest, but definitely the weakest so far. All right, guys, we're here for You Ain't Seen. This is my pick for you. This is Martin Scorsese's 1990 movie, Goodfellas. Pretty much a legendary uh, crime movie, mobster movie. I figured you don't like mobster movies, Mm -mm. so I figured you should either see Goodfellas or The Godfather. I feel like you probably would like The Godfather more, but Goodfellas, I feel like, is kind of like the references that you hear a million times more modern. You know, I don't know. It's it's tough to call. So, uh, yeah, this is based off a book that's supposedly a true story. You know how that stuff works. I don't. What you know, you never know in this kind of stuff, right? So, uh, essentially, it stars Ray Liotta, is why I picked it too, because Ray Liotta recently passed, RIP, great actor. It also stars Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Lorraine Bracco, um, Paul Servino, and a lot of other people that you'd recognize. It, it basically uh, put every Italian character actor that was around at the time in the movie. Michael Imperioli is in there, uh, Kevin Corrigan, just everybody's in this movie. Who's Paul Servino? Uh, Paul. They just kept him the same name? Wow. Probably because the guy's actual name was Paulie. I mean, right. it's a, I mean, Paul's a common name. It's not like his name, you know what I mean? Right. So, uh, yeah. Um, Which um, the wife does say in the movie, like, um, when they're doing the wedding, she's like, everybody's named Peter or Paul. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it's an epic movie. It's two hours, 25 minutes. Mark Scorsese mm-hmm. is one of the considered one of the greatest directors of all time i just felt like it was on weird you had to see it so um he he obviously did uh more kind of mobster movies with casino which has de niro and um never seen casino de niro and uh, pesci again but he did a movie before that had de niro and pesci and raging bull where they were paired up together. We I, did watch a little bit of Rage. Yeah, Bull. I did. You, you watch it. I, yeah, I just yeah, watched. Well, I, I feel them. like um, the, the 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 partnership between those two is always so great. Now, like watching this is the first time I realized how much of a role, like how difficult a role Ray Liotta had, because De Niro and Pesci, like they're they're amazing, but mm-hmm. they play it into their strengths a lot of it, or or so what we thought became their strengths. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but Ray Liotta has like has to walk this line. Like he's just like a lot of different kind of characters and just adapting. He's very very three dimensional. He he's a character that grows and changes as yeah. the story progresses. Because he has to. Right. Um, so, so anyways, like the movie <coughs> opens up typically, like it doesn't open up right in the beginning. It, it kind of hooks you in with something that they re come back to, which is really mm-hmm. great. Um, with a lot of narration, which some people don't think narration is a good choice. Um, and I've never had a problem with it. I think when Scorsese uses it, he uses it excellent. Did you notice, like halfway through the movie, all of a sudden other people started to do narration, like Lorraine Bracco did narration? I think she was the only one. The only other one. Um, I don't remember any other characters, so it's it's really just uh, Leota and which and makes her. sense because they're in the witness protection program, right? Um, the only thing is, is like she has the one scene of narration kind of when she's getting introduced to him, and then she disappears. Then it, I don't think, yeah, no, maybe Le- is it Leota? Ray Leota, Ray Leota. Yeah, um, he opens up with narration. He, he opens up with narration, but I can't think if he 
starts narrating at the second part of the no he does i think i mean he narrates the entire movie. yeah he does narrate. So, so it was just weird to have yeah, her narrate it's that strange one they, they do yeah. that in casino too like or multiple characters are narrating and then at one point one character who's never narrated narrates one little thing it, hmm. it's interesting um so like did you notice like the long takes which are, are obviously amazing in this movie, oh going yeah through the bar and all mm-hmm. the characters and the needle drops is one thing that i would say that scorsese's kind of unmatched with that because he seems to have access to all music including a lot of rolling stones tracks and he seems to know his music where to put his music especially when the decades change even to mm-hmm. the end credits with fucking uh the sex pistols which is it's the bringing a, a singing a frank sinatra cover which for a mob movie which is just like that's so on the nose it's perfect mm-hmm. though so i i don't know like i i i personally love the movie i think it's amazing i initially saw, I'll, I'll let you talk about your feelings on it i initially saw it when i was a kid on television and okay. I, I watched the first chunk and it started getting past the heist and uh people were getting killed and i was so intrigued i had to go to bed though and i think i rented the movie like the day after and i watched it and i i've always loved it i mean it's always a very quotable movie and uh, i'm a big de niro fan i'm a big pesci fan um so I, I always really liked it. And uh, it's nice to see little small roles in here by Mike Starr, Samuel Jackson, just tons of people. So um, honestly, what what did you feel about the movie? I mean, it was okay. It was, I think, probably what I expected. Um, I think I, I did like the first half more than yeah. the later half. Um, basically after the heist and like the going on after that like it just kind of like lost me a little i think maybe got a little bit i don't want to say too modern because i i don't know i think i kind of like the stuff that was happening in like the 50s and the 60s more than i did that was happening in the 70s and the 80s well you like period pieces right more well, so. yeah, yeah yeah but you know i like any period piece you could put in a period piece from the 90s and yeah. i'm probably going to enjoy it um but it it, it becomes a different movie it does become a different movie the the second part is like like it's it's shot and it's i think it's you know probably to reflect uh ray liotta um just like the paranoia of like the camera angle everything's jittery um nothing is focused on for very long versus the beginning part of the movie it's more slow it's more rhythmic um so so i think and it, it is a long movie and so i i think i was just kind of like wore out after a while um i I noticed you. I see that for me, like I fall asleep during a lot of movies. Right. This movie, I I was falling asleep before it. Like every second, I was like, oh. and then like I put Goodfellas in, I was wide awake, like, and I was excited <laughs> after it. Like I I know that probably uh, it, it, you didn't seem like get tired though. That's that's the one thing about a great movie is like no matter how you know what I mean, it just keeps your intention the whole time through. For me, it did. It always. Does. I mean, you know movies don't necessarily put me to sleep i become restless when i'm watching them like like when we were watching the conjuring i was restless for that first half like, the changeling. like yeah what did, what did i say conjuring yeah no when we we're watching the changeling um i was restless for that first half but then it hooked me with the story this movie i feel like it kind of lost me on the story just because i didn't know where it was going to go and i know it's based off a true story but it's like man there isn't a character all these characters are are, are kind of trash people but that's the story. That's, no, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't like, change it. I, I um, think they're intriguing to watch. Every one of right. them is super intriguing to watch. Like, I mean, you have Joe Pesci and his character. Every time he's on screen, he's absolutely terrifying. He like, kept pissing me off. I'm like, why is he killing everyone? But he nuts. has a, he has a little man personality. Well, in real life, he wasn't. I guess a little guy. I guess the person. But like, uh, but he just was perfectly cast, right. and, and he was scary. Like. 
you ever been around people like that where like they're they're funny and charming and then the next second they're terrifying like and oh yeah you just can't like keep your guard down like and you watch it like you watch de niro through an entire movie too he's like like charming and stuff but he he like obviously just gets super paranoid and like paranoid that scene where he's in the bar and they drop the rolling stones and he realizes mm-hmm. he's basically gonna kill murray and yeah. everybody else probably because he doesn't want to pay him the money did, did you know it's okay i i don't think that he's in the movie a whole lot um he he, he is i think more weighted in the second half and in the first half in yeah. the first half it's all um pesci and then they start switching it to uh de niro and then you know what happens to pesci happens to pesci and de niro just he doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue or a whole lot of action he, his moments are all brilliant though like, right I, he this, does have great scenes. the scene with billy bats the way yeah. he's like we did offend him a little right there like i like how his demeanor is right there how he handles himself i right. mean in the film is just one of those very memorable scenes um like and also um just like his interactions like i feel like he, he just you see him change too he's mm-hmm. a character joe pesci never changes joe pesci never, never changes, changes. No. Uh, but you see de niro and ray leona <laughs> change throughout the movie and even paulie like they're just like everything gets so much worse for these guys like right. over time like and and i know like you never thought it was being glamorous well it's attempt probably was to show you kind of like a glamorous side of just being able to get whatever you want but the second half is obviously the downfall of everybody right. and stuff like that now like again i know you're not as big into like music music as me like that type of music from the 60s all the way up until that time mm-hmm. and i love that kind of music so like i i think the needle drops really help especially layla by eric and the dominoes eric clampton or whatever mm-hmm. where they use uh they find it's i think it starts with um johnny rose beef um <laughs> who has probably my favorite interaction with de niro because it's so realistic where he's like i told you not to buy anything and he's like it's, it's in my mother it's in her mother's name and he's like don't fuck it and he keeps saying it under his breath he's like what was that what'd you say <laughs> like i love that so much i still laugh when i think about it because it's so dead on but like that 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 needle drop is just perfectly done like where it shows all the characters getting killed over there and it ends with carbone and then the freezer like, yeah. did you not have any, like, did you not have, like, any emotional, any... I, I could not emotionally attach to any character, and I think that might have been... I, I mean, they're not good people, the, but they're I still... Mean, they're not good people, but I think that because you have such a huge cast of characters, and, and I, I don't want to say that they're all stereotypes, but they all play into, like, the Italian stereotype. Everybody speaks exactly the same, you hear the same... But they all do their own thing. They so, all do their, and, own, their own thing, but they all, they, you know, everybody has, like, the same, like, three lines over and over, and I think that's just what I expect and what I have seen from the mon- monster... <laughs> Monster. the mobster type movies but is... at the same time i think that knowing who these character actors are just seeing them gives them their own kind of oomph anyways and i like yeah. when i first saw the movie i i could tell them apart like i knew almost all the people apart like right away it's just i don't know that my mind works different from you and how i That's relate true. to like side characters like in movies like i was i knew like all the characters in day of the dead when i first watched right it. band of brothers we watched it this series in in world war ii class and i memorized every soldier in the the show and it's a whole fucking platoon and it's just from watching it's right. just like i take note of these things i i pay attention to the small characters because to me like the small characters in the background what they're doing it just adds like a, a certain depth to it that i like and like their interactions with some of the major characters i don't know that's just something that i've always been intrigued by like it feels lived in the world the characters all seem like they no you you're you're absolutely right um but i I also come from 
like like the animation background. So to me, like side characters are still significant characters. I, there's just something about like drawn media that like yeah, yeah, I yeah. gravitate towards versus regular people. You, you know, and and that's just always going to be my preference. Um, I love side characters. I love Day of the Dead. I love its cast. Yeah. Um, but in in this case, and I think it, it is because they they introduce everybody so quick and then like you, then they go an hour without ever showing them again like th- there's like a like an, a good 45 minute chunk because I, I really like really liked um Polly yeah. um and and they introduce him and he has his, his section in the beginning and then you go 45 minutes without any Polly I'm like well where, where's my guy and then he does come back and so Polly was your favorite pa- Polly is probably my favorite of, of the characters um it's it's kind of weird, like because Paul Paul Servino's in this movie from '78 called The Brinks Job, mm-hmm. which also based on a true story about them pulling off this giant heist, and it's got a bunch of people in there like Peter Falk and Warren Oates and stuff like that. And I feel like it's weird that he's also like he wasn't involved in the heist, but he's in another like the heist. The heist stuff is probably the most interesting, I think, aspect that... of the movie because you bring in like the idea of the organized crime. They're actually doing something, right? Right, right. That you know the heist stuff is neat, but then they they never show any heist. I, I just like the which back. I don't think you need to. No, but... I, Reservoir Dogs never shows the robbery. Right. I I I don't know. Like I I like a lot of the side characters. I like the music mm. drops. I like the dialogue. The dialogue is priceless, especially when it comes from Joe Pesci. Like it's he's horrible, but he's funny. Like he's funny, especially when he's like, yeah, we're, he's like, you guys didn't make coffee. He's like, what? I look like a fucking cater. Like <laughs> I the way he like interacts is like it's not some of the worst stuff he says like the racist no, stuff no, but no. like the shit he says like what do I look like a fucking caterer like that kind of stuff is the kind of shit you say to your friends like and I, I feel like his demeanor and like De Niro and just Pesci's ball busting in the movie is like become almost like uh, um, a huge part of like pop culture where people just even the good feathers from uh the animaniacs, animaniacs. yeah so like i i feel like it's so funny like when he's like no i look like a fucking carrier he's like hey carbone get that coffee to go carbone will make some coffee and right. then after he kills stacks he's still making guys like oh he's like no you fucking idiot it's a fucking joke like but like pesci's like he's he's just amazing at it like he's scary as shit and he's just i don't know how you do that like comedic and scary yeah pesci is is, i think the strength of the actual movie because he is like the most like contention when like not contention but um you you don't know what you're going to get with him like i think De Niro is more subdued in this movie than like in some of the other stuff i've seen and he kind of like I mean, I'm never going to trust De Niro. De Niro's smart, though. Like um, he, he's, he's, he's he's smart, he's cunning. He, like, you he's know what I mean? relatively put together. Um, Pesci is totally unhinged in this. Um, he, you know, it, like dialogue-wise, again, I think it's because we are just saying the same lines rather than every mobster movie I've seen. But maybe it's just we're all quoting this one. Um, <laughs> like, like, like the drinking game of this is every time somebody says that they're busting your balls, you take a shot. I mean, because it is literally every 30 seconds. Go <laughs> home get your fucking shine box. Right. That part's brilliant. I'm just busting your balls. You, you know, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, but I'm also not big on the mobster movie I, I mentality. But, like, as far as the cinema, the filmmaking, the cinematography was great. The yeah, editing I was mean, great. The acting is great. Right. It's not by any means a bad the movie. The dialogue is great. Right. It's just, you know, it's it's just not the movie that I would watch. I, I think I would like The Godfather a bit more, knowing absolutely nothing about it. But I think it's because... I, I just had the idea that The Godfather is a more narrative piece, while this is a while 
Goodfellas is a more character piece. Which is weird, because I feel like maybe I tend to prefer character pieces, but actually, no, I think it really is narrative that I really like. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of it. Five I'm also five. a hater. Five out of five for me. Yeah, you're almost at that point now where if it's something too popular and you haven't seen it, you just hate it. That is a absolute lie. The Shining, Goodfellas, need I say more? Okay, but I all the other movies that we watched that I had seen, I've, I've really loved. What? Um, and... And don't forget, see, yeah, hater, uh, hater. <laughs> totally, I am not a hater. Yes. I, I love Little Shop of Horrors, and I had never seen that. And but that's I, a very I popular think, movie. I don't know if Little Shop of Horrors is nearly as popular as The Shining. I liked um, Changeling. Uh, not nearly as popular as The Goodfellas or The Shining. Oh, hold on though, hold on though, because like, it. it if if the movies I don't like are are Stephen King and mobster movies, and then we watch Stephen King and mobster movies, then yeah, hey, I liked Carrie. Yeah, remember okay, so, remember that so, time right, I right. gave Carrie a five? I gave a Stephen King movie five stars. Ten out of ten for uh, Goodfellas. For Goodfellas, I'd say like a one out of five. Shut up! I'm just busting your balls. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously though. No. Uh realistically it's probably like a five out of five me personally i'd give it like a three and a half out of five but again it's not a movie that i'm going to be drawn to um favorite uh, piece of dialogue what line stuck with you literally no line stuck with me because no line stood out to me now i gotta turn my back on you Uh, okay that that was a good scene but it's not a line that i'm going to memorize sausage when he's cooking the the sausage and don't put too many young don't put too many young it's it's so funny though too like it's so every line in this movie is quotable i mean no every every line in this movie is quotable because it has a funny italian mobster accent that's why it's not true not true there's there's other guy there's other characters in here who say stuff you you know like oh it's in my mom's name you you know i like but but the thing is like i don't think i laughed when i was watching this movie i i mean i guess the humor was i think it grows on you i do like i think it grows on you i think when you watch it you're just like but have you ever had one of those things where you don't realize it, it's actually funny until after? Like, and you start, like, repeating it yourself amongst friends, and then when you go to yeah. watch it, it's... A, but, so what are we watching next week? Um, I am going to give you a choice. Um, you know, I don't like watching really long movies when it's nice out. Um, but I think it's supposed to rain next week. So, do... You want to do because I, I I've been always wanted to watch it. I always wanted to watch A Clockwork Orange. I never watched it, but I don't know how long that movie is. I, uh, do you I have sh- it? I should order the 4K. I only have the DVD. We uh, the we, we ain't messed with no 4K. Right I know. Now. No, uh, <laughs> we ain't going to that story. That pissed um, me off. But I have the four. I have a Blu-ray. So I I was torn between either um, Clockwork Orange or I think enough time has passed. Like three four weeks of um that i do want to see the corman little shop of horrors so i don't know you want to watch some 50s black and white sci-fi or do you want to watch some um uh anthony burgess you know clockwork orange is probably two hours and 25 minutes too. It probably but, but it's great is it great yeah i think you'll like it better than this one do you think that this might be my third kubrick film third favorite uh dr strange loves one dr strange Love is an absolute favorite um um and then I'm, I'm i'm really into uh space odyssey yeah 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 but you don't um, like the shining it's not that good 
we're done. Let's we're just... not. Wait, well, no. What movie are we going to pick? You want to do Clockwork? Or you want to do? Let's do a little shop of horrors, and we'll do Clockwork maybe the week after next or something like that. The week after next, or maybe I'll pick Clockwork because I, I planned on picking it too. Let's oh, just, you did? Yeah. I'll okay, little shop, little shop of horrors. Little shop of horrors. The Corman original. Yep. I think it's black and white. Yep. I think it's like 50... 1960, maybe? Really? 1960? 59, 60, somewhere around. I just want to watch more Corman, because anytime I watch a Corman movie, I like. Let's do it. All right, fine. Little Shop of Horrors it is. All right, let's get into these questions, comments, concerns, all that stuff. So last week I asked you one movie you didn't care for at first, but it eventually did. you ended up liking it, and how many times did it take to watch, whatnot. So here we go. RB, the question of the week is the easiest one for me. I remember watching Day of the Dead and being so let down and disappointed because I had rented Dawn of the Dead a couple weeks earlier and watched it over and over that weekend. It instantly became my favorite movie. I think I was expecting Data basically to be a direct sequel to Dawn, and I was disappointed and hated it. I watched it again a couple years later and was like, okay, this movie isn't bad. Eventually, I seen a documentary about George Romero as an adult and started to understand and see what a genius George was and started to understand the themes in the Dead trilogy. Fast forward to today, and Day is right on par with Dawn for me. There are 1A and 1B, basically. Both 10 out of 10 movies and still the two greatest zombie movies of all time, and both on my personal top five horror movies of all time. I would disagree. I, I've always loved Day. Um, I used to like Day better than I like Dawn. Now I like Day is my favorite movie. I go back and forth, but I don't think Day's ever going to change again. Love, love Dawn and Day and Night. Super way. Haha, I agree with Jeremy. The Shining's overrated, though I'd probably give it a second watch. Great video. Thank you. Barnabas Collins. Uh, great video as always. I was curious. I love your intros that you put together for the 80s horror, but would love to see the list of movies you used to make it. I see so many clips that I think, man, what movie is that from? And I would love to see it. Any place you post that or a way to see it, thanks for the work you put in to bring us these great videos. Thank you. Um, The thing about the 1980 intro is like the dialogue in the background doesn't always match the clips. So there'll be like different movies in the dialogue and in the visuals. So I can uh, send that to you, um, but I'd have to break it down by audio and visual. There's like 28 different movies used, I think altogether. So Ken Coakley, I worked at a movie theater that had trick or treat in 1986 I talked about it a little bit last week. I was dying to see it because I was a metalhead in those days. In fact, the day I was hired um, was the day Metallica bassist Cliff Burton was killed. Mark Price, who played the protagonist, Eddie, was on Family Ties with Michael J. Fox and James Tremors, uh, James Gross. Um, yeah. Um, is it James Gross or Michael Gross? It's Michael Gross, not James Gross. There you go. Um, Eddie looked just like one of my heavy metal buddies in the movie. Blackly Lawless from Wasp, Dee Snyder, Ozzy Osbourne, Paul Stanley, and Gene Simmers were all considered for Sammy Kerr role, but they all turned it down. So they hired a dancer from a TV show called Solid Gold. His name was Tony Fields, and he passed away when he was young. Yeah, I think he died of HIV, actually. Keanu Reeves, who was really into thrash, was considered for the Eddie role. I picked up Ragman Blu-ray at Rock Shock a few years ago. It was at my sister's house of storage, and I'm dying to watch it again. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I watched Black Roses on Joe Bob Briggs' last uh, Lost Drive-In on... Um, Shutter last week for the first time since I rented it somewhat in the 80s. It was still entertaining. Yeah, I, I remember it being fun. It's not the best movie ever or anything like that. So, But Horse Cinema, The Hitcher is a classic. He left out the best part of the Rugger Howard quote after he said, I cut off his head. He says, and I'm going to do the same to you. Sorry, I just, I just had to add that. Sorry. D. Gulag, comedian Gallagher had something to do with the funding or production of Alligator. It's a real classic. Uzi Suicide 666, best reviewer on the planet. Thank you. Uh, me, uh, Milo169. I guess I add lo- I'll add Lost Souls to my watch list. Bit aware of this movie, but never checked it out. I don't know why I like movies like that. I guess I'm just addicted to misery. Ha ha. Just need one of those pervert cards ASAP in the case the police come knocking. Yeah. 
uh, Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula in 1958 um, were two Hammer movies I saw when I was like 17 and didn't really like them. Now, Hammer Horror is my favorite genre, favorite genres. The more I watched them over the years, the more I fell in love with them. Maddie Mac, been wanting to see Hotel Fear for years, especially given how good perfume of the Lady in Black is, and it didn't let me down. Mondo Macabre did a great job. Agreed that it was cool to see Luke Miranda killing it against type. Mike Moore, not horror, but the first time I saw Jackie Brown, I guess I didn't really get it. I guess I was fairly young at the time, but now it probably my, it's probably my second favorite Quentin Tarantino film behind Django Unchained. Um, I kid. There's a lot of good films listed here. Giant Monsters, All Out Attack, Nightmare City, and Alligator are favorites of mine. I even enjoy Monstroid, even though it's really bad and goofy. Uh, I like the monster in Monstroid. Um, Jason Lindbergh, Friday 13th Part 5, hated it when I was young. After rewatching it as I got older, I loved it more and more. Uh, I always I, I like it. I love that one. Sadie Tate, Ghost World. It was probably the second viewing when things started to shift for me. Uh, Jacqueline Young, uh, Young Ginger, Babadook for me. I hated the kid in the in it originally, but after rewatching it years later, I became more empathetic towards him. Steve Rodinsky, The Phantom Menace. I hated it as a kid, though it was I thought it was stupid and awful. Never watched it again until I was an adult and actually had a great time with it. Like the plot, character set pieces just worked well for me. Chris Drex, A New Nightmare. Watched it once as a kid and didn't like or understand it, but I bought a complete set and watched all of them over, and now it's actually one of my favorite nightmare films. It only took one rewatch for me to really appreciate the unique take. It's, a, it's an interesting movie for sure. Uh, Cameron Scott, Pontypool. Absolutely hated it the first watch. Don't remember why, but I watched it again six months later and it quickly became one of my favorite movies. That, that movie's bonkers. A lot of these you can understand why someone would be like, I don't know how I feel about that, but then rewatching, it's kind of it's kind of cool. Terrence Cover, The Company of Wolves, Alien Resurrection, Doob Generation are all films I thought were terrible my first viewing, but then gave a second chance years later only to realize that I actually love them. Yeah, um, I feel like I felt the same way on Doob Generation. Daniel Carlson, Blade Runner on my second viewing. Jackie Kelly, everything by Todd Salons. Hated his stuff when I watched it in high school. Gave him another chance a few years later. Now I adore his films. I didn't know that Happiness was a dark comedy the first time I saw it. I was in like uh, I was like 19 and I was just like... And then like as I got older, I watched it again. I was like, this is genius. Jenny Murray, I don't re-watch films I don't like. It's a massive waste of time when there are films I haven't seen at all. And Heather Jarvis, yeah, um, I see uh, people always saying, oh, I hate this film. Maybe I should give it a rewatch because my friend likes it. Not me. If I remember it, I'm not watching it again. And then you have the people that will watch a movie multiple times and be like, I still hate it. Why are you watching it seven times when you hate it? Uh, Justin Burning, I agree uh, I agree. if a film that generally seems like garbage, but if it's a film that has a good or interesting reputation, I'm usually willing to bet it, I was in a wrong mood to state of mind when I watched it. It's happened so many times. I forgot to put Seymour on there. Um, uh, I basically, you know, it depends, you know, how much the film changes over time, how much you change over time. It, it also, you know... It's not always a movie I absolutely hate. It's a movie I didn't get, maybe, or it's a movie that I, I don't hate, but I, I didn't love, and then you revisit it. If, if, there's a lot of movies that I will never revisit because, you know, they're just not worth your time, possibly. They're, they're pure garbage, but there's a lot of classic movies that you watch and you think, I didn't love it nearly as much as I should have, possibly, and maybe give it a rewatch. You you change over years, um, but I understand if you absolutely could not stand a movie, if you wouldn't watch it again, unless, like, everybody and their brother says it's great. But, hey, it is what it is. Um, okay. Tom Brooker. First time I watched uh, the original Wicker Man, I was young and hated it, but I kept going back to it, and now it's my favorite horror movie ever made. Christopher Webb, Piranha Part 2, The Spawning. Absolutely hated it on first watch, and wondered how they could make a movie about flying flying killer fish so boring. Oh, second watch, I was more sober. Uh, ergo, more appreciative of it. I don't consider it the weakest in the franchise anymore, at least. Sean Donahue, House of a Thousand Corpses. Justin Burning, The Beyond. Probably three rewatches to fully understand and love it. It was my intro to Italian horror, and in general, and from an American 
American Hollywood perspective, it takes time to get used to how they do things. For sure, for sure. John Devlin, I saw The Godfather when I was a kid and it bored me to death. Watched it again in my 20s and loved it. David Russ, Napoleon Dynamite. I thought it was lame the first time I watched it back when it came out. A few years later, it's one of my favorite comedies. Lee Bishop, Halloween 3. I used to hate it as a kid. Now it's the best film in the series, in my opinion. Uh, David Brendan, Harris, Watchmen. Megan Elaine, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Watched a high school for class and hate it. Watched again after college and loved it. 100% loved it. R.J. McReady, I'll say from Dust Dawn 2. I had to watch it about a half a dozen times before I realized it was actually shot in a real interesting way and told the story in an entirely different way than the original. Barry O'Connell, Alien 3. Saw it in theaters, hated it. Maybe wanted, watched it once or twice after, but then uh, the assembly cut making him documentary came around and changed my perspective completely. Jeff Keith, A Clockwork Orange. First uh, saw it as a teen, hated it because I didn't get it at the time. About a decade later, matured and have loved it ever since. Kaylee Gray, Mandy, it just took one rewatch. I felt like I had too many questions the first time that were unanswered. But I just kind of let myself surrender to the mystery of questions and enjoyed it. I could see that for sure. Nick Moore, initially I just couldn't sit through Danny Boyle's transponding. I felt it was just too nasty a feature. Then upon my second viewing a few years later, maybe I was a little wiser, something just clicked. I laughed, I cried, I experienced a hodgepodge of emotions. I, I believe that's what he says. I forgot to hit Seymour. I did this twice in a row. I'm an idiot. Sorry about that. I went through all of them, too. I'm dumb. Peter Glenn, once about a time in Hollywood, saw it at 11 a.m. in the cinema with my father, and we were both probably not in the right mood. It was the first time that QT disappointed me and my father, but when the time went along, I kept thinking about it for months and months. I remember you putting it, and then you eventually came around to it. That's cool, and you said it might be one of your favorites now. Justin Patrick, Inferno. Jason Lloyd, I need to revisit that. Saw it years ago, and it bored me to tears. Shazim Barbarian, I didn't like The Gate when I was a kid, but I love it now and hated The Witch the first time seeing it, but now I... I like it now. Also, the Psycho remake. Um, Carly Saul, Sonnefeld, The Witch. Second time watch was better because it was easier to understand. Uh, everything being said. Metal Endearing. Freddy Got Fingered at Zoolander. Upon first watches, I thought both were dumb. By second watches, I started quoting them. And now two of my favorite comedies. Um, Christopher Webb says he used to love Freddy Got Fingered, but he doesn't anymore. But he did laugh on rewatch. Joachim Johansson, Diamonds Are Forever. Mark Allen Gunnels, Pangy Sue Got Married. Saw it as a teen and thought it was boring. Rewatched it as an adult and I can relate so hard. Okay. Got another page here. A lot of answers this time. Lee Jones, Bloodstalkers. Hated it when I got the tape as a kid. Kind of loved it when I rewatched it a few years ago. Morgan Susek. Hated the OG Night of Living Dead. Took five watches to about 15 years for me to actually appreciate it. Alex DeVincio. I was bored to tears when I first watched 2001 Space Odyssey as a young teenager. But when I revisited it in my 20s, having developed interest in filmmaking, I found it to be a cinematic masterpiece. Uh, Cassidy Botwin. Funny enough, so many of my all-time favorites I kind of hated at first. For example, Curtains, Evil Dead 2013, As Above, So Below, Taking of Deborah Logan. Sometimes it just takes one rewatch, sometimes multiple. Part of why I love revisiting films. Um, if I didn't do the Seaboard, I, I screwed up on a lot of people. Sorry about that. Eric Whiting, Terry Gilms, Brazil. I just didn't get it when I first watched it. Took one more revisit shortly after, then everything clicked. Steven Van Meter, The Princess Bride. While I will don't love it, I find it more tolerable and even a little charming at times. Some of the language is still pretty cringy, though. Michael Olaf Klump, Enter the Void, but I could probably say that about all Gaspar Noe's films. Aaron Mazzola, the Love Guru, hated it in theaters, waited 14 years, watched it last month, loved it. Corey Walter, Jack's Back with James Spader, first watch, didn't get it at all, and hated it, but watched it when the Screen Factory put it out and enjoyed it. Chet Turner, I had the opposite reaction with Hitchcock, a film, The Trouble with Harry, loved it when I saw it in a, as a kid in theaters, saw it again last summer, realized it was Hitchcock's worst film. 
Brandon Young, Martyrs. I saw it when it came out, and it was extremely a bad place in my life. I regretted seeing it. A decade later, I rewatched it because my co-host wanted to do a new French Extremity episode, and it had a completely different experience. I can see if, if you're in a bad mood, just how bad that one might do some bad things to you. Daryl Spears, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Zachary Puccinelli, Sleepwalkers. Danny so- uh, Sandoval, Hostel. Justin Patrick, another one is Kill Bill. I really didn't get it back in 2003. Neil Machino, uh, um... Machindo, uh, Nacho Libre was disappointed first watch, fell in love the second watch. Now I've seen it 20 times. 20 times. Uh, I, I feel the same way about Murder Party. First watch, I, I was like, I don't get it. The second watch, I fell in love with it. Eric Waters, it follows five or six. Get the last page here. Adam Weber, Blue Velvet, just the second watch. Mike Merriman, Napoleon Dynamite, and Texas Chainsaw 2. Salvador Funkenstein, I know you asked for one, but I'll give you two because there are in a series. I hated Halloween 3, like most people for the same reason, but I grew to love it over the years. It really hit the spot on Halloween. Um, one Halloween, I decided to give it another chance. Something about Tom Atkins in that one and the unintentional humor. So much fun. That and I felt really lukewarm on Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Didn't get the hate then. Watched it again last year, and I don't know if I'm losing my mind or my taste changed, but I grew to love that one. If Season of the Witch didn't exist, Zombie's High H2 remake would be my favorite of the series. Related to that Shaw Brothers title that no label would pick up. Sounds like a job for Code Red and Banana Man. LOL. I think Vinegar Syndrome would pick it up or Massacre. No no problem. Or on Earth. No problem for those guys. Uh, Christopher McFarlane, The Pit, 1981. When I first saw it, it honestly put me off. Uh, but after a few watches a decade or two later, I really got to enjoying it. And I began to see some of the flaws of its flaws ended up being its greatest assets. It's a good way to look at the pit. I love the pit. Carson Peters, Cabin Fever 2, took three times. Hereditary took two times. Suspiria took three times. Those are all good answers, to be honest. Different movies, too, completely. So for next week's question of the week, I want to know one actor-director combination you wish happened. Like, just, uh, it could be, they could be passed, they could still be alive. One actor-director combination you wish got to work together. Like, uh, it's like, I would have loved to see Clint Eastwood direct Joel Pesci. Anything. I don't know if that happened. I don't think it happened. But just any actor-director combination you would have really liked to see. So that's going to be the question of the week. Let's hop into this update. Okay, let's hop into this update. First up is the 4K of the Candyman, the new Candyman. It was a good price. I, I would like to revisit this eventually. I enjoyed it. I know some people didn't. Like I said, it was close to being really great, but it, it was like missing something for me. But I did enjoy it, and I definitely will revisit it. So that's Candyman. Um, this was an accident. I am a part of the Disney Club, just in case they release some of the exclusives. Sometimes I will forget to cancel or deny one of their offers, so now I have Turning Red on 4K. Yeah, if my nephew stopped by or something, maybe we can watch Turning Red. Um, I definitely didn't want it, and it was expensive, but these kind of things happen, right? That's what, that's the price you pay when you gamble with Disney. Uh, Disney Plus or Disney uh, Disney Club. But I, I did eventually get Something Wicked This Way comes out of it, right? So uh, next up we have Knockabout, which is uh, somebody picked for a Patreon pick. I, I ordered this from Eureka. Uh, yeah. So uh, this is directed and co-starring Samo Hung. Um, this, I think Jason Willard's the one who picked this. This, is from, this looks fun, from my understanding. Should be pretty cool. And then also I had to order Revolver 
from Eureka when I ordered. This is a fantastic Oliver Reed movie. Fabio Testi's in here. Is it Sergio Salama? Uh, who, who directed this one? Sergio Salama? Or however you say his fucking name? I believe he did direct this one. Yeah, he did a bunch of spaghetti westerns, but Reed's got a great performance in this movie. And last up is Four Times That Night by Mario Bava from Kino Lorber. Um, I realized this was going out of print. It was uh, not available on their website, and maybe maybe it's coming back in print. I don't know. Regardless, I was like, oh shit, I can't have... I know it's more of a comedy, but it's, it's also listed kind of as a thriller at points. I was like, I can't have one of his genre films that's on Blu-ray and, and miss out on it. So Four Times That Night by Mario Bava. That is the update. Let's get back to the video. Before we get out of here, I want to give some Patreon shout-outs to Rob and Patre. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, and uh, yeah, so thank you guys very much for watching, and as always, have a good one.